Well, good morning, church. I don't want to interrupt good fellowship this morning. A sign of a good, healthy, thriving church is plenty of fellowship time and sharing together. And it's good to be back. Um, This was kind of short notice. Just yesterday, Pastor Elisha reached out to me and asked if I could come in and speak again. He's under the weather, uh, so pray for him. And, uh, but it's good to be back, and I'm happy to help out. And I appreciate, you know, you custom ordering such nice, cool weather here. I, I don't know what your weather's been like down here in San Diego. I live up in Orange County, and then I teach in Riverside at California Baptist University. And it was a little warm this week. Uh, we were hitting triple digits, uh, pretty high. And my air conditioner went out. And, um, and that increased my prayer life. It's just a, yo, help, Lord, you know. So, yeah, so it's nice to be in cool weather, and uh, it's good to be back. And um, so uh, I wanted to share a message that I sometimes share in churches since this was short notice. This is one of my uh, favorite passages to look at. Um, It's actually two passages of Scripture, and I must apologize. I don't have PowerPoint notes to show on the screen, so you have to listen carefully and follow along, uh, which shouldn't be a problem. So if you uh, turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 11 and put your finger there, uh, Luke chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 in just a minute, and then then flip over to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, and I'm going to be reading off my notes because it's, it's amazing. The older I get, uh, my arms are getting shorter. I have to, like, you know, to read. <laughs> it's amazing how that happens. So um, I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 6, verse 6 uh, to start with. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Verse 9, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, flip over to Luke chapter 11, and this passage might surprise you. Some of you are aware of this, but others of you may not be. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, we find very, very similar words. Verse 1, different context, different situation. It now says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John, John the Baptist, taught his disciples. Verse 2, and he said to them, when you uh, pray, say, quote, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. 
And so we see the Lord's Prayer there in the Gospel of Luke. So I want to talk about praying about what matters, praying about what's important, praying about what's, what really matters. A number of years ago, it's been about 20 years ago now, there was a very popular book in Christian circles called The Prayer of Jabez. Some of you may have seen that or heard that or heard about that or read the book. It's an interesting um, book. It became quite popular about 20 years ago, sold tens of millions of copies. It was actually based on a very obscure character in the Old Testament. Now, I don't know if you've read through the book of 1 Chronicles anytime recently. Uh, The first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles in the Old Testament is nothing but genealogies. Uh, It's just one begat after begat after begat after begat. Well, in the middle of that, there's mention of a descendant of the line of Judah by the name of Jabez. And Jabez prayed. It says that in chapter 4 of 1 Chronicles, Jabez was honored more than his brothers, and his mother named him Jabez, saying, because I bore him in pain. Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, that your hand may be with me, and that you would keep me from hurt and harm. And it says God granted what he asked. And so we have Jabez praying this prayer. Bless me, enlarge my border, may your hand be with me, and that you would keep me from hurt and harm. And so the book was based on this as a model for praying, and it became very, very popular, as much discussed at the time, uh, this obscure character that we basically know nothing else about. And I must admit, at the time, I think it's good to study prayers in the Bible by different people, but I found it a little odd that this was being almost idolized as a new model for prayer the example by which we should use as a pattern for praying. Because some people, and I don't think this was the intention of the author, had twisted this into a selfish form of prayer. Because Jabez says, bless me and enlarge my border. You know, bless me, Lord, financially, materially. And it became a biblical rationale for selfish praying. And as all this was going on, I teach New Testament for a living. And so... um, so I was thinking if, there, if we should look for a model for praying in the Bible, we should probably look at maybe Jesus or Paul. Paul has lots of prayers. And if Jesus had ever said, his disciples ever came to him and said, hey, Lord, uh, teach us to pray, uh, maybe we should look at that as a model for prayer. And that's exactly why I wanted to read Luke chapter 11 to you. That's what happened. The disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray. And so I think what we see here, we often call it, in fact, the, not just the Lord's Prayer, but the a model prayer. It's a paradigm for praying. And what we see here Jesus teaching us is that he's teaching us the main things that we ought to pray about. Now, the reason I wanted to read both passages from Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11, you may have noticed there's a little bit of differences there, and that's okay. It's Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer that we're most familiar with. That's the one we usually recite in church or we sing. Uh, When my kids were tiny in preschool age, I taught them the Lord's Prayer. And when I would pray with them at night, my younger daughter, Abigail, who's now married with my grandson in Atlanta, but that's just wrong because they live too far away. But she was about three at the time, and she would always pipe in after we would recite the Lord's Prayer, having prayer at night. She would say, let's sing it. And we'd be bellowing, our Father, you know, the... The windows would be opening and dogs would be howling and mothers would be taking children off the streets. and Yeah, but we had fun doing that. And I taught them the Lord's Prayer, Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer. That's the one that we are most familiar with.
with. In Luke, we see a similar uh, example of the Lord's Prayer, and we shouldn't be surprised that it's worded a little bit differently. Uh, Most certainly, Jesus would have taught on the subject of prayer many different times, many different places, slightly different versions. And I actually think that maybe that teaches us a good thing. Because sometimes we tend to treat some passages of Scripture the way they're worded, especially in the King James Version, uh, almost as if it's a magic formula using the these and the thous, as if abracadabra, we say it this way, precisely in King James language, magical stuff happens. But we see in Luke that it's a little bit different. Uh, When God is addressed, it's a little bit shorter. Instead of our Father who is in heaven, it's just simply Father. And uh, thy kingdom come, Matthew has, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, that's explaining what the kingdom of God is, God's will being done. Luke doesn't happen to mention that. And at the end, um, Matthew has, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Luke doesn't happen to mention the part about deliver us from evil. That's a continuation of the thought there. What we see when we look at this passage closely is that there's actually, in Matthew, there are seven commands, or, or maybe I shouldn't say commands, it's imperative verbs in Greek, uh, asking God to do something. And in Luke, we see five. And that's what I want to focus on today are the five requests that Jesus emphasizes, the five main verbs in the model prayer that we see in the Gospel of Luke here. So if you're looking at Luke chapter 11, we see that Jesus says, um, uh, Father, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Now, that's a verb in Greek that is based on uh, the Greek word that means holy. Uh, holified <laughs> would almost be an English version of it. Sanctified be your name. And what Jesus is indicating here is that right at the start, when we go to God in prayer, we should focus on God's greater glory. That's point number one for today. Jesus taught us in prayer that when we go to God, we should seek God's greater glory. First and foremost, because prayer isn't about us. It's not about us. It's about God's greater glory. And when we come into the presence of God, what we see in the Bible repeatedly, it doesn't matter if it's Adam in the garden, it doesn't matter if it's Moses before the burning bush, it doesn't matter if it's Elijah on a mountain, it doesn't matter if it's Isaiah going into the temple. Whenever people come into the presence of God, they realize their own unworthiness and God's greatness. And that's what Jesus is expressing here. And so we see that first and foremost when we go to God, we should seek God's greater glory. It's interesting, when I teach in the New Testament, uh, I teach through the letters of Paul in my New Testament survey class, and I make a comparison. There's some interesting wording I find in Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 compared to Philippians chapter 1. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul had started a church in Thessalonica, and according to Acts, after three weeks, he got run out of town. And so he didn't get to stay long to disciple them. And so he wrote what we call 1 Thessalonians back to them, and he's explaining why he's not able to be there, except he actually never gives a specific reason that kept him from going back. He doesn't mention that he was in jail. He doesn't mention that it was a health issue. He doesn't mention any specific reason. But he does say that Satan hindered him from going back. Now, what I find interesting is over in Philippians, now Paul is actually in jail. Uh, He's in jail as a Christian, perceived as a troublemaker, and he actually sees that as God's will that he's in jail 
And if you're familiar with Philippians chapter 1, you know why. Because people are talking about Christ. They know his imprisonment is for Christ, and so people are talking about Christ. So even though Paul's personal circumstances are not good, he's very joyful throughout the letter because God's will is being done despite his imprisonment. Now, what I find interesting about that is that Paul's circumstances sound better in 1 Thessalonians than they do in Philippians, but in Thessalonians, he saw it as the work of Satan keeping him from going back to Thessalonica. In Philippians, even though he's in jail, he sees it as the will of God being worked out as Christ is being talked about. And what I notice about this comparison is, for Paul, the will of God is not what benefits him personally, but what builds up and strengthens the church. In Thessalonians, the health and discipleship and welfare of the church was at stake by him not getting to go back. And in Philippians, people were talking about Christ. And so we can see first and foremost what Paul sought when he went to God in prayer was God's greater glory, God's greater will to be done in this world. And so Jesus here in the model prayer as given in Luke he teaches us that we should seek God's greater glory. That, that's what we see Paul say when he says uh, in for three chapters, 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10, Paul talks at length about the problem of food that had been sacrificed to idols and whether or not they should eat it. You know, certainly don't go to the pagan temples, participate. But what about marketplace food that had come from there? Is that okay? Jews tend to say no. Gentiles said, nah, it's just, it's just regular food. And it was threatening the, the, to split the church. And Paul summarizes after discussing this for three chapters, he says, whatever you drink, eat, do, or say, do all to the glory of God all to the glory of God. What a great, great principle to live by. So that's what we see Jesus teaching us here. Right as we go to God in prayer, right at the start, hallowed be thy name. Jesus taught us to seek God's greater glory. Well, the next request that Jesus mentions is that we should pray, thy kingdom come. Praying for the kingdom to come, or as it is worded in Matthew, thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven that the kingdom of God would come. Now, that expl- uh, requires some explanation. Um, what is the kingdom of God? Uh, it is the central number one topic of Jesus' teaching. Uh, if you were to count the number of times Jesus mentions the kingdom of God in the Gospels, I think it's 61 separate independent times Jesus mentions the kingdom of God. It's almost like every time he opens his mouth, the kingdom of God this, the kingdom of God is that. The kingdom of God is like this, and he gives parables to compare. What's interesting, he actually never defines what the kingdom of God is. And so we use that language around church a lot, kingdom of God, but we often don't stop and think, what exactly is the kingdom of God? Uh, certainly it's not a kingdom like medieval times, you know, with castles and drawbridges and moats and, you know, uh, knights on horses with uh, suits of armor, although that comes to mind when we hear the word kingdom, probably because we're used to the United Kingdom. And, you know, they just had a transition there. and We see all the pomp and pageantry of, of exchanges of power. Well, that's not what Jesus means. Not talking about building a castle and digging boats and all. So what did Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? Well, in Matthew, it's expressed as the kingdom of heaven. So sometimes people think, well, the kingdom of God is just simply heaven, eternal life, where we go after we die. Well, that's an aspect of the kingdom, but that's not entirely the kingdom of God. 
Okay, other times people say, well, the kingdom of God is the church, God's people in this world, his body doing his work in this world. Well, again, the church is an aspect of the kingdom of God, but it's not entirely the kingdom of God. Um, So what exactly is the kingdom of God? Well, if we think at the most basic level, to have a kingdom, you've got to have a king. If you don't have a king, you don't have a kingdom. So to have a kingdom, you've got to have a king ruling, because if you don't have a king, you've got something else. You've either got anarchy, uh, you've either got democracy, where people are voting and ruling. So to have a kingdom, you've got to have a king, and that's what the kingdom of God is all about. It's God's reign as king coming to earth in a unique and special way. God's rule as king. Now, God is God. God is in control. God always rules and reigns. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, what he means is God's reign coming to earth because there's much in this world that is in rebellion against God's reign. So praying for the time that God's kingdom would come fully here. It started in the ministry of Jesus, but it hasn't completely fully come yet. In fact, it's interesting if you study the expression kingdom of God in the New Testament, at times Jesus talks about it being here, now, and present For example, in the Gospels, Jesus says, if it's by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. It's already here and now. It's present. It's here. It's already here. Okay, but at other times, Jesus speaks about the kingdom being in the future. For example, at the Last Supper in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine new until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. It's in the future where he will do this. Or even here in the Lord's Prayer, if we're asking for the kingdom to come, it's still future. It's still to come. So what we see is it's both here and it's not here. It's present, but yet it's future. And so the way we see that is is that in the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom of God was inaugurated. And we can see that in the Gospels. Lives are being made whole and being restored. Sins are being forgiven. Evil's being kicked out. God's reign was coming in a unique and special way in and through the ministry of Jesus. But yet it's not fully here until he returns. When he comes again, that's when this old present world will come to an end. So it's kind of like an overlap of the ages. The kingdom has started, and we experience the kingdom through the Holy Spirit in our lives as we submit to God's reign, Jesus as Lord in our lives, but it won't fully come until the end of time when Christ returns. And that's the hope of the ages. That's what Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority in power. That's what Paul means in Philippians 2 when when Paul says that God super exalted Jesus, gave him a title above every title, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. At the end of the ages, all creation will come to recognize that. This is what John means in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, when he says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. That's what Jesus means when he says, thy kingdom come. And so that's our prayer, that God's kingdom, God's reign would come into this world. It's what we seek. It's what we hope for. It's also to be our business, what we are about. What I mean by that is, how do we um, live out the kingdom? Well, we do it by evangelism, sharing our faith, 
Because when we express to others that we submit to Jesus as our Lord and lead them to come to understand Jesus as their Lord, they're becoming part of God's reign. They're submitting to God's reign. So through sharing our faith, that's part of the kingdom of God. Living obedient lives instead of pushing back against God and His ways. Living obedient lives is recognizing God's reign in our lives, the kingdom of God. Social justice in this world for the poor, the marginalized, the suffering, the hurting, that's part of the kingdom of God because we see Jesus doing that as He extends the kingdom of God and sends out His disciples to do those kinds of things in this world. So what we see here in the Lord's Prayer is that Jesus teaches us to seek God's greater glory hallowed be thy name, to seek uh, God's sovereign rule as king in this world, thy kingdom come. The third request that we see here in Luke is simply, give us each day our daily bread. And I would summarize that as seeking God's daily provisions. Give us this day our daily bread. You know, the ancient world was a good bit different than our modern world in almost like every possible way in terms of language, clothing, transportation, family structures, all kinds of different things about the ancient world was very, very different. The way that they fed themselves was very, very different. Uh, they didn't have Costco and Sam's Club and Walmart and grocery stores. Theirs was an agrarian world. They lived literally off the land. And more and more today in the United States, we don't do that as much. Now, some of us do, uh, or some of us have experienced that. I grew up in East Tennessee, God's country, a uh, little biased towards it, <laughs> but uh, I did. And uh, my grandparents lived about 60 miles up the road from us in a little town called Rockwood, Tennessee. And in the summertime, my brother and I, I've got a brother two years older than me, when my parents were sick of us and wanted us out of the house, they would send us off to grandma and grandpa's house for a week, and it was great. Uh, grandpa and grandma had six acres of land, they had six head of cattle, they had big gardens, and so my brother and I, we'd help in the gardens, weeding and, and hoeing and doing all those kinds of things. And we had a good time there. But what was interesting to experience is that grandpa and grandma basically lived off the land. Uh, they had huge gardens, corn, peas, and they canned their vegetables and their fruit and all that kind of stuff. And when we would eat a meal at grandpa and grandma's house, basically everything on the table came from their gardens except for the bread. Grandma didn't like to make bread, so she would buy that at the store. She would splurge on that one. But even the meat would be beef from the cows. They would slaughter a cow once a year for ground beef and steaks and things like that. And so everything on the table uh, was, a, was directly off of the land there. And that's much more like the ancient world. And I point that out because most of us don't live that way anymore. Some people garden, but most of us don't live off the land. I experienced this also when I went to Kenya. Goodness, it's been about 20 years ago now. I've got a uh, professor friend in Kenya, and uh, he had stayed at my house, and I had gone to visit him. In fact, we had actually hoped our whole family could go for a semester uh, quite a few years ago, and that didn't work out. But I did get to go for three and a half weeks. And when I visited my friend Adam... Uh, I didn't go as a tourist. I wasn't staying in hotels and riding in buses and eating in restaurants. I was his guest. He was my host. So I was staying in his house and visiting his friends and eating their meals. And I was among good Christian uh, folk there. And it was fascinating to me to hear their prayers because they lived directly off of the land. 
Uh, They didn't spend their money in grocery stores buying food. You save your money because you might have emergencies, health emergencies or stuff. So they live literally off the land. And so it was really fascinating to me as I listened to them pray before their meals, pray before they went to bed at night. You could tell how they understood they were directly dependent upon God for the rains and for good crops and good weather and their livestock to be fertile and all. And it really impacted me. Now, we are just as directly dependent on God as they are. It's just we don't realize it. Because usually most of us in the United States, we have jobs and earn salaries or wages. And then we go to stores to buy our food. But still, that is all the direct blessing of God. And so we just sometimes don't realize it. We feel, sometimes we feel self-sufficient, like we're working hard and I earned all this myself. No, it's really God has given us the strength, the breath that we breathe, the beats of our heart. It all is directly dependent upon God. And that's what Jesus is teaching us with this simple phrase here. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, in the ancient world, bread wasn't the side piece of a meal. It was actually the main course. Uh, I also experienced this in Kenya. You know, meat is expensive, and even more so with inflation. But in the ancient world, to have meat, you had to kill an animal. In fact, I remember vividly when I was in Kenya, we went to visit one friend's house, and... um, Uh, The husband was uh, like entertaining us with conversation and all for 30, 45 minutes. And uh, I didn't know what was going on. My host friend, Adam, told me later, uh, basically what was going on was since I was a guest from a foreign country, they wanted to offer me the best. And so the wife was actually out back chasing down the chicken to kill it, to fix it, and have a meal that had meat in it. They didn't always have meat at their meals because it was too expensive to do so. And that's the way it was in the ancient world. Bread was the main staple uh, for, their, for their meals. Fish and meat was kind of a side thing, an extra that you didn't always have. So when Jesus is saying, give us this day our daily breads, he's basically saying, meet our needs. Not our wants, not our excesses, extravagances, those kinds of things, but meet our needs is what Jesus is teaching us here. In fact, in this very chapter 6 of Matthew, if you were to go on and read through the Sermon on the Mount, in this chapter, Jesus actually talks about, he makes comparisons to the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, their basic food and clothing. And in that chapter, Jesus famously says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Well, it sounds like great big stuff's going to be added to you. All these things he's talking about is simply food and clothing, the necessities of life. And so we see here in the third request of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus is teaching us to depend on God for the basic necessities of life. So we see that Jesus is teaching us to seek God's greater glory. We see that Jesus is teaching us to seek God's sovereign rule in our lives in this world, thy kingdom come. Uh, We see Jesus teaching us to seek uh, God's daily provisions give us this day our daily bread. He also teaches us to seek God's gracious forgiveness. God's gracious forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So bread may be our daily necessity for life. Forgiveness is our spiritual necessity. We are utterly in need of God's gracious forgiveness. We are all broken at the core because of our sinfulness. 
And we are utterly dependent on God's gracious forgiveness. And that is what Jesus is teaching us to seek, to see our dependence on God and this need of forgiveness. That's our most basic need as humans for forgiveness. And that's what we see Jesus illustrate throughout the Gospels. Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a great story about a super religious guy, a Pharisee, and then kind of a scuzzy tax collector guy that was seen as a traitor against his own people. And both of them went up to the temple and prayed. And the Pharisee, in his arrogance and self-righteousness, boasted. He looked up and was so proud of himself. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, like this wicked sinner over here. I pray. I fast twice a week. I tithe. Aren't you impressed? And his arrogance is just overwhelming. And then the, the tax collector at a distance felt so unworthy, he didn't even want to look up to heaven because he felt so unworthy. He just beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that was the guy that went home justified, not the religious guy. He recognized his need for grace and forgiveness. And that's what we see Jesus t- teaching us here. We should daily seek, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So we should seek forgiveness from God. But Jesus is also teaching us we should be people of forgiveness. It's not just receiving forgiveness, it's actually offering forgiveness as well. In fact, Jesus even clarifies at the end of Matthew chapter 6, right after the Lord's Prayer, he says, for if you're not willing to forgive the sins of others, God's not going to be willing to forgive your sins. And if you are willing to forgive the sins of others, God is willing to forgive your sins. It's the principle of reciprocity. We're not just to seek forgiveness, but to offer forgiveness as well. Jesus taught a great parable about that too. He had such great stories to tell. This one's in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, Jesus talks about a guy, a slave, that was indebted to a king, and he owed 10,000 talents. Now, that's a huge amount of debt. And I know we as Americans have a tendency to get into debt and feel like it can be overwhelming. Well, this debt, 10,000 talents, is like off the charts. A talent was actually a weight, 70 pounds, like of gold or silver. So owing 10,000 talents would be like owing seven. 100,000 pounds of silver. It's basically, it would take, I mean, four or five lifetimes to pay back this kind of debt. And so the, the servant pleaded with the king, please forgive me, I can pay it back, please, please, please forgive me. And the king was gracious and forgave him. Well, that's, that servant that was, had been forgiven, he, he actually was owed a debt by someone else, and it was just merely 100 denarius. A denarius was a day's wage, a hundred denarius would be about a third of a year's work. Now, that's a significant debt. If you had four months' salary that you owed to somebody, that's a significant amount of money. But the guy that had been forgiven so much, 10,000 talents, was unwilling to forgive his fellow servant. And he choked him. He demanded the payment. And then the king came to the unforgiving servant and threw him in jail because he was unforgiving after having been forgiven so much. And Jesus used that to say that if we have been forgiven so much, we of all people should be people of forgiveness. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 4.32. He said, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. So, in the Lord's Prayer, we see Jesus teaching us to seek and ask for God's greater glory, hallowed be thy name, 
God's sovereign rule in our lives and in our world, thy kingdom come. God's daily provisions, give us this day our daily bread. God's gracious forgiveness, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Finally, Jesus teaches us, the last phrase there is to seek God's constant protection. Lead us not into temptation. And Matthew goes on to say, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Uh, A lot of people are confused by this. We're so familiar with the wording in the King James Version. Lead us not into temptation. Why would God ever lead us into temptation to start with? Why do we even need to ask this? I mean, the book of James chapter 1 even says that God will not tempt us towards evil. So, so what are we supposed to make of this? Well, I think we get a little help when we look at the Greek word. The book of Matthew was written in Greek. The Greek word here in the text, perosmos is the word. And it can mean temptation towards evil, but it can also mean testing, like testing the good for something or the time of trial. In fact, the exact same word is used later in Matthew chapter 26 in Gethsemane when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John a little bit further And he says to them, pray that you don't enter into temptation. The time of trial is what he's talking about. In other words, the crisis of faith. In the early church, to follow Jesus wasn't an easy thing. And in many places of the world, the sword could be at the neck for following Christ. And so what Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray is, may may you be spared from the time of trial and persecution, and martyrdom. But if that happens, rescue us from the evil one, deliver us from evil. So it's a prayer for God's constant protection. And we see that in the scriptures. We see Daniel in the lion's den being protected. We see Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego being protected from the fiery furnace. And so God is a God of protection and deliverance, and that's what we see here. But it's sometimes we end up suffering in this world. We don't know when and how and why these things work, but sometimes we do experience suffering in this world and the worst that this world can offer, but we still trust in God's constant protection. Deliver us from the evil one. So the Lord's Prayer here, uh, I think that if we were to look for a model of prayer and the things that we should emphasize and seek not only when we go to God in prayer, but also in our daily lives and the way that we live out our faith is that we should live this out. God's, that we seek God's greater glory, hallowed be thy name, God's sovereign rule, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, God's daily provisions, give us this day our daily bread, God's gracious forgiveness, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then God's constant protection, lead us not into the time of trial, but deliver us from the evil one. So may God bless uh, the reading of his word here today. Let's have a word of prayer together as as we uh, wrap this up.